Well, good morning, church. So happy to see your faces this morning. My name is Shana. I'm the family ministry director here at Littleton Christian Church. I know you don't see me up here too often. I'm usually upstairs with your kids, which is, of course, my favorite place to be. But Mike is still recovering from his illness of last weekend and once again couldn't be here today, um, which is really sad. I know he's really bummed. He really misses us. We miss him. So if you could just continue praying for his recovery, um, I know he would appreciate it. Um, so I am here instead this morning. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I also know that Mike really wanted to be the one to preach the sermon today. He was really excited about this. So he sent me his manuscript on Friday. So we've had a few days to work on it. It's been great. And, um, but I just wanted to let you know that, that a lot of what I'm sharing today does, does come straight from him. And, you know, I feel like if the Reverend Mike Wright is one of my commentaries that I take off the shelf and use for sermon writing, I, I feel really good about that. I really do. So, so I, th I think we're okay. I think we're doing good. So we're currently in a series in the book of Psalms where we're endeavoring to remember that God is with us always, even to the end of the age, as Jesus promises us at the end of Matthew. At the start of the series a few weeks ago, Mike asked us the question, how do we remember that Jesus is with us? Jesus says, remember that I am with you. Well, how do we do that? How do we remember that Jesus is with us and present with us always and in every situation? And a couple of weeks ago in that sermon, Mike said that Jesus gives us an answer by setting us an, an example in his own use of praying the Psalms to remind himself that the Father was with him. And we can learn to do the same in our own lives as we engage with the Psalms. So we've been specifically kind of diving in to various psalms where the phrase shelter or refuge comes up. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I have taken shelter, as our psalm for today states it. So this morning, let's hear a reading from Psalm 7. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I have taken shelter. Deliver me from all who chase me. Rescue me. Otherwise, they will rip me to shreds like a lion. They will tear me to bits, and no one will be able to rescue me. O oh Lord my God, if I have done what they say, or am guilty of unjust actions, or have wronged my ally, or helped his lawless enemy, may an enemy relentlessly chase me and catch me. May he trample me to death and leave me lying dishonored in the dust. Stand up angrily, Lord. Rise up with raging fury against my enemies. Wake up for my sake and execute the judgment you have decreed for them. The countries are all assembled around you. Take once more your rightful place over them. The Lord judges the nations. Vindicate me, Lord, because I am innocent, because I am blameless, O exalted one. May the evil deeds of the wicked come to an end, but make the innocent secure, O righteous God, you who examine inner thoughts and motives. The exalted God is my shield, the one who delivers the morally upright. God is a just judge. He is angry throughout the day. If a person does not repent, God will wield his sword. He has prepared to shoot his bow. He has prepared deadly weapons to use against him. He gets ready to shoot flaming arrows. See the one who is pregnant with wickedness, who conceives destructive plans and gives birth to harmful lies. He digs a pit and then falls into the hole he has made. He becomes the victim of his own destructive plans, and the violence he intended for others falls on his own head. I will thank the Lord for his justice. I will sing praises to the Lord Most High. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment of silence as we think over what we've just read. Amen. So taking refuge in the Lord or making the Lord a shelter is a favorite metaphor in the Psalms. You'll read it over and over again. The common usage for that verb in Hebrew meant to take shelter from bad weather or to seek refuge from enemies. But the Psalms turn it into this beautiful metaphor for the act of trusting one's life to the care of God in uncertain or threatening situations. So Psalm 7, then, with its bold opening declaration, sets the stage for the intention of the whole prayer. This prayer is itself a way of seeking shelter in the providence of God. When the believer's life is unjustly threatened, or when the believer's standing with God is unjustly threatened, we take shelter in God by honestly bringing the evil before God, entrusting justice and mercy to God, and remembering the destructive nature of sin. That's kind of the big idea of Psalm 7. Do we have any students in here at the moment? We don't. We all went upstairs. That's great. Because <laughs> I'm about to tell a story about them. <laughs> you can tell them. It's fine. So if this was one of our Wednesday night student gatherings, this would be the point where some student would um, blithely and unconcernedly totally interrupt me and be like, hey, Shana, why is David telling God to go kill somebody? That seems pretty messed up. And then another student would probably throw a pen or maybe a pillow at that student and tell them not to interrupt me because I'm probably going to get to that. And then someone else would probably throw that pillow back and say something like, actually, there's a lot of scary psalms, and they'd probably look at me hopefully for affirmation. And then more pillows and pens would probably fly across the room. And then I'd have to have everyone take a few deep, calming breaths. We would clean up whatever hot chocolate just got spilled, and we would truck on. That's a little insight to some of our Wednesday night student gatherings. I know you want to be there. It's super fun. I love it, actually. <laughs> Studying the Bible with kids and students, it's just the best, and not just because of pillows and unpredictable interruptions, but because they often say what we're all thinking anyways, but we're too polite to say. Though if next week one of you brings a pillow and throws it at Mike during sermon time and interrupts him to ask a question, let's leave me out of that, okay? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Donald. It is the question in all of our minds, though, when we read Psalm 7. Isn't it not very Christian to want to call down curses on other people? To want to call down death and destruction on other people? After all, Jesus calls us in Luke 6, 27 and 28, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. But David here prays that God would rise up with raging fury against his enemies. Can we reconcile these? Can we bring these together? We do need to recognize when we read the Psalms that not only did David pray this way, but that the Jewish people felt that these prayers were important enough to be preserved in their prayer book. Just like Psalm 5 and Psalm 16, Psalm 7 helps us equip one another to take shelter in God to remember that he is with us always. As I said earlier, Psalm 7 helps us see that we can take shelter in God by honestly bringing evil before God, entrusting justice to him, and remembering the destructive nature of sin. 
David here obviously has life-threatening enemies. He fears for his life. The very beginning of Psalm 7 references someone named Cush, a Benjamite, meaning that it was someone from the tribe of Benjamin. David doesn't have a good relationship with the tribe of Benjamin. It was the tribe where King Saul came from, the king that was just before David. King Saul died in battle. David took the throne after King Saul. And the Benjamites were pretty suspicious for the rest of David's reign. And when I say suspicious, I mean like murderously vengeful for the rest of his reign. Um, even though David's claim to the throne was right. And so we can kind of understand where he's, where he's coming from in Psalm 7. This last week, my son had a day off of school to honor another man who experienced the constant threat of enemies, some of whom were also life-threatening. Martin Luther King Jr. was not well-liked in this country when he was alive. He was very much disliked. As one of the leaders of the civil rights movement, he was one of the most controversial voices of his time. I would argue he would still be pretty controversial in our time if we didn't like to cherry pick what we like what he said so much. His faith and his calling as a preacher led him to guide the civil rights movement to be a nonviolent tidal wave, calling for justice and for change, but many who disagreed with that message did so in incredibly violent ways. The civil rights movement faced incredible violence and experienced incredible violence. In August of 1967, at a church in Chicago, Dr. King gave a sermon called Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool, if you'd like to look it up. It's really fun to listen to. Um, it's really fun to hear the whole thing in his, his own voice. But in the sermon, he shares a little bit about a prayerful experience of his own that he had um, shortly around the time a bomb went off in the front of his home in 1956 with his wife and his daughter sleeping in the back of the house. I'm going to share a little bit of the sermon this morning. I'm going to skip around here or there. Um, and I am no Dr. King. So <laughs> just keep that in mind as I read some of his words. I was going to play this whole thing for you, but playing it for you makes it twice as long because of the um, very large audience participation in, in Dr. King's oratory style, which is wonderful. Near the end of the sermon, he shares this. They started making nasty telephone calls, and it came to the point that some days, more than 40 telephone calls would come in, threatening my life, the life of my family, the life of my children. I took it for a while in a strong manner, but I never will forget one night very late. It was around midnight, and you can have some strange experiences at midnight. There was a big amen in the congregation right there, by the way. I had been out meeting with the steering committee that night, came home, my wife was in bed, and I crawled into bed to get some rest. And immediately the telephone started ringing and I picked it up. And on the other end was an ugly voice. That voice said to me, in substance, we are tired of you and your mess now. And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. I'd heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. I turned over and I tried to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I was frustrated, bewildered, and then I got up and went back to the kitchen and I started warming some coffee, thinking that coffee would give me a little relief. Then I started thinking about many things. I pulled back on the theology and philosophy that I had just studied in the universities, trying to give philosophical and theological reasons for the existence and the reality of sin and evil, but the answers didn't come there. I sat there and I thought about a beautiful little daughter who had just been born about a month earlier. We have four children now, but we only had one then. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile. And I sat at the table thinking about that little girl 
and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. And then something said to me, you've got to call on that something, that power that can make a way out of no way. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me, and I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. And oh yes, I prayed a prayer, and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. And I'll tell you, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I have felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. Never, never leave me alone. Never to leave me alone. And I'm going on and believing in him. And you'd better know him and know his name and know how to call his name. You begin to know that our brothers and sisters in distant days were right because they did know him as a rock in a weary land, as a shelter in the time of starving. If you believe it and know it, never will you need to walk in darkness. Don't be a fool. Recognize your dependence on God. As the days become dark and the nights become dreary, realize that there is a God who rules above. So I'm not worried about tomorrow. Can you imagine him? not being worried about tomorrow. I get weary every now and then. The future looks difficult and dim, but I'm not worried about it, ultimately because I have faith in God. And I don't mind telling you this morning that sometimes I feel discouraged. I felt discouraged in Chicago. As I move through Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, I feel discouraged. Living every day under the threat of death, I feel discouraged sometimes. Living every day under criticisms, I feel discouraged sometimes. Yes, sometimes I feel discouraged, and I feel my works in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. God bless you. Like I said, I'm well aware that I'm no Dr. King, but even reading those words aloud, it stirs something in me. Dr. King, he understood that Psalm 7 means that God wants us to bring our case before him. We might not have the life-threatening enemies that Dr. King had, but wherever there are people, there will be people who take advantage of others. Some of you have experienced wicked betrayal, accusation, neglect, terrible things. God is full of love and justice, and holding your anger back in prayer is not a virtue he's asking of us. We can, and sometimes we must, pray this psalm with and for others, or with ourselves. We can stand with the oppressed and the discouraged, and we can pray for justice. We can pray with David, may the evil deeds of the wicked come to an end. I look around at the world, 
events today, and I can pray that a lot. May these wicked deeds come to an end. Whether on behalf of another or personal, whether physical or mental or spiritual, psalms like this one call us to take shelter in God by honestly bringing the situation to him. But David doesn't just stop there, and we don't either. When we do bring these situations to him, when, when we honestly bring evil before God, we also entrust the results to God. The Psalms might ask God to do gruesome things to enemies, but we can't miss that the task of vengeance is entrusted to God. Praying these things doesn't obligate God to anything. It just invites God into the pain in our hearts. The Psalms do not teach us to pray in some kind of emotionless, disinterested state. They engage our whole emotions. The longing for wrongs to be made right is a completely human thing. Just watch kids having a disagreement over a toy or the TV. <laughs> Justice, however it's understood by them in that situation, it, it will be done. They will take matters into their own hands. Psalm 7 offers us a safe place and the proper way to seek vengeance. Do you trust that the judge of the nations will properly deal with the accuser and the abuser? If he is a loving God, it is certain that he will. Moving on to verse 12 in this psalm, uh, verse 12 gives us an even better picture of David's full surrender in this way. Verse 12 reads, If a person does not repent, God will wield his sword. Repent? When did repentance come into play in all of this? I thought we were talking about vengeance here. I was on board with vengeance. Not so sure I'm on board with evil people repenting. I actually am. I was just, you know, playing the other side. <laughs> the good news of Jesus hinges on repentance. We know that Jesus has offered forgiveness and salvation to all who confess and repent and submit to him. All. But the Hebrew law saw the need for something more than just repentance. There was also the need for sacrifice. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the punishment one deserves is transferred to the animal, and God's mysterious grace allows this to happen. We can see the obvious ties with the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 12 says, if a person does not repent, but it could also be translated as unless God relents. So the verses around here could maybe go, um, God is angry all day. Unless his anger relents, he will punish, he will wield his sword. David knew the stories. He knew about Noah and God promising to never flood the earth again. He knew about Moses begging God um, not to destroy the Israelites. And God relented in those situations. How many times when people deserve total destruction did God not do that? Many times. So David has indeed fully surrendered the work of justice to God, whatever God chooses to do. Whatever God chooses to do. In this last section of Psalm 7, David demonstrates a rather nuanced understanding of sin. Um, it is, in every case, ultimately self-destructive, these verses are kind of trying to tell us. How does God wield his sword? By allowing David's enemies to dig a pit and then fall into the hole they've made. He becomes the victim of his own destructive plans. 300 years after Jesus lived, Augustine would write, sin becomes the punishment of sin. The broken world turns in against itself. David's enemy is indeed a victim, and he will self-destruct unless God has mercy on him. Psalm 7 turns our eye to the life-giving justice of Jesus. 
who took on the curses and the accusation of his enemies offers mercy to anyone who wants the credit of sacrifice counted in our favor. So a few weeks ago, um, Mike also preached that the Psalms are at their best when we use them, when we pray them, when we put them into action in our lives. One of my favorite books um, last year was a book by Tish Harrison Ward called uh, Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. The whole book is based on an ancient prayer of Compline, which is in the Book of Common Prayer, it's, it's the prayer that's based around nighttime. It wasn't the actual Compline prayers that struck me most in the book, though they're good and helpful and very beautiful. It was the way that Warren wrote about this practice of praying the prayers that have been handed down to us. She writes, For most of my life, I didn't know there were different kinds of prayer. Prayer meant only one thing, talking to God with words I come up with. And I still pray this way every day. Freeform prayer is a good and indispensable way to pray. But when we pray the prayers we've been given by the church, the prayers of the psalmists and saints, the Lord's Prayer, the daily office, we we pray beyond what we can know, believe, or drum up in ourselves. These prayers discipled me, she writes. They taught me how to believe again. We come to God with our little belief, however fleeting and feeble, and in prayer, we are taught to walk more deeply into truth. When my strength waned, and my words ran dry. I needed to fall into a way of belief that carried me. I needed the church's prayers. I really resonated with that. I really resonated with a lot of what was in that book. Because I have found that in my own life, that the times I need to express myself the most to God are the times I seem to have the fewest words to do so. My emotions are big. The hurt is deep. The grief is devastating, and all I have are things like, God, help. Father, why? Jesus, where are you? God, I'm sorry. And while God hears both those few words and the big emotions, he hears those prayers, and and he acknowledges those prayers, I'm left feeling as though the words weren't enough. I just don't have any others. I'm, I'm silent. I have no others. In these times, I find shelter, and words in the prayers of the Psalms. I find shelter in words of justice, in words of guidance, in words of mercy and providence. I'm given permission to pray my circumstances and not feel shame at my anxiety, my anger, my grief. Warren, uh, in that book, also writes, when we're drowning, we need a lifeline. And our lifeline in grief cannot be mere optimism. We need practices that don't simply palliate or disguise our fears or pain, but that teach us to walk with God in the crucible of our own fragility. I didn't know how to hold both God and the awful reality of human vulnerability. What I found was that it was the prayers and practices of the church that allowed me to hold to, or rather be held by, God when little else seemed sturdy. To hold to the Christian story even when I found no satisfying answers. I'm deeply grateful for the Psalms as prayers in my life when I don't have the words to pray. And I'm deeply grateful that God receives any emotion, any thought, any circumstance I may have from anger to joy. Will you pray with me?
Lord Jesus, this morning I'm grateful. I'm so very grateful for the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for the word of the Lord. The word that is a lamp for our feet. The word that is a path for our prayers. We will sing praises to the Lord most high. Amen. <laughs> 